it is interesting that um, a dip, one difference connected to that that I see. Uh, Pat Robinson comes at this discernment as an individual from the outside of suffering, from a place of privilege himself as an old white male. Um, who he's not, He doesn't live in New Orleans. He's offering out. He's not among those who are suffering. And that's a major difference between what we're experiencing in Lamentation. This is the lament of the people on ground zero. Um, and not only that, Jer- uh, uh, Pat Robertson is an individual. Lamentation comes to us as a product of community discernment. So this is part of the canon of the Hebrew people. And they together, they all, all of them from the ground level. And it's interesting, you know, there's probably some privileged folks who are uh, the ones who can write and record the scribes who are putting scripture together. How striking is it that even though uh, lamentation is so damning and indicting to their injustice and stuff, that it still was canonized. That it still was in the Hebrew Bible. So there's this whole community discernment process that's behind what we have in Lamentations that we don't get when we have a pundit kind of on the side. Right. Um, I was at A&M when Bonfire fell, that tragedy that killed so people. Mm. And uh, I remember being on campus at that time within like the Christian subculture, which is prevalent at a and And there were people that were saying things like, because like some guy or a couple people in years past had prophesied supposedly that Bonfire would one day fall in, uh, you know, peak within the Christian subculture. And there are statements like, oh, bonfire fell because of XYZ, this sin on campus, or that sin on campus. And um, the same kind of rhetoric. And I just remember um, kind of what you just said made me think about this. Um, uh, you know, my college pastor talked about kind of coming from the, from the view of what you just shared, Charles, that like... Um, this, that you can't really do that. Like, you can't really, like, his perspective was if, if there was, like, something coming from God, like, that the church would experience it first, mm. not not the broader community, that, like, the church would be part mm. of facing that, red, uh, you know, like, judgment or mm. I thought that was helpful to me to, like, to caution me to, like, judge, yeah. you know, and, and, like, pronounce these things on, oh, this bad thing happened to you because of X, Y, Z. When again, like if I'm an outside party, like I don't necessarily have a place. Yeah. To do that. Oh, that's a great point, and it, you know, I, I think it highlights another major difference between uh, Pat Robertson and Lamentations, and that is the the broader context of of all of, the, of Deuteronomy of Lamentations is this covenantal relationship between mm-hmm. God and His people. Um, and uh, the USA is not the people of God, as it were. What? Um, I know, but but often often assumed to be, you know, manifest destiny. America is the new people of God. We're the hope of the world. Yada yada. And so we we impose on Scripture all the stuff that was true about Israel, and we just assume that's true for the United States, yeah. but but it's different. Okay, oh. I stirred up some trouble. <laughs> Your turn, Kara. <laughs> so, now I get to talk about, I have the opportunity to talk about um, the, the white elephant in the room, which is um, God's sovereignty and judgment. 
<laughs> and, um, I mean, we live in a culture where there's, like, happy, and we want those happy endings, right? Like, thanks, Disney. And we want, like, the things to wrap up in one episode in a nice typo, right? Like, this is us, but that's not right. Um, and we always want the good guy to beat the bad guy and that triumph. And, and so it's hard to wrap our heads around this God who, in, in Lamentations 2, who intentionally puts his hands up and steps aside and lets Babylon come in, or he, and he just allows this devastation to happen, that he allowed devastation to happen to have a city, a nation, to a people. God being the bad guy? Question mark? Um, but that's kind of what Lamentations 2 is describing. It's his sovereignty and a nation deserving punishment. And so let's continue explaining this. So in chapter, or I'm sorry, in, in verse 17, it says, The Lord has done what he has purposed. In this chapter, um, in this chapter, verse 17 is the vocal is the focal point, and it addresses that the punishment the punishment was deserved, that it was planned, that it wasn't just off of a whim, right? God fulfilled His word using a very powerful nation, Babylon. So, kind of the question is, well, why why do people why was this deserved? Why why this devastation? What has led to this? Because that's not fair, and that's not right, and all that. So, in chapter 2, or in verse 2, it talks about how the people, and let's remember that these people are in covenant with God. And that is a huge piece of this. That they are in covenant, which is a huge binding contract that is um, that God does not take lightly. And so, in, in verse 2, it kind of, or, I'm sorry, y'all. In verse 6, it kind of talks about this idea of they had forgotten the things of God. They were continuously disobedient. They ignored and they neglected God or even the, God, the duties to him, whether it was following the Torah to, to do this, their civic duty in the city or whether it was the temple duties that they had to do and, the, and being there to worship. So they just kind of forgot. They forgot and made him not central. Then it talks about, in verse 14, it talks about the foolish things for you. And so what that's saying is the, they, the false prophets spoke during that time. So when those false prophets spoke in this city, they said, hey, happy times and peace is coming. And there's happy clappy times, like we've said. And don't worry about it. And it's all good. And just don't look that way. So they avoided talking and confronting the sins of the people of the city. And so if there were the real prophets, the prophets like Jeremiah, that the people should have been listening to, he's the one who said, we, there is sin and we need repentance. If we don't repent, things are going to happen, y'all. I don't know if they used y'all, but in my head, Jeremiah did. But here's the deal. Like, the, the people, they had a sense of being untouchable. They were privileged, right? I mean, after all, they were blessed by this amazing temple. And at one point, the Queen of Sheba came to look at all the riches and the gold of this city. So, of course, they were untouchable. They were this privilege, right? People want to come see them. So they chose who to listen to, what they wanted to hear. In social work, I'm a social worker, they call that avoidance. (laughs) They chose to listen to only those who said what they wanted to hear. I mean, and after all, with a society that oozes with entitlement and pride, who would want to listen to prophets like Jeremiah? I wouldn't. The people have gotten off track. And and they have gotten so off track that their words started to say, we deserve all this. We deserve this, and we deserve this, and so they took, and they took, and they took. The people were blessed, but they, but they forgot something. They forgot that when God is not central, there's a part of God's character that becomes revealed that we as Westerners, in our Western thought, we don't always like to talk about. 
And so there's this, this idea um, of, of God's character and God's faithfulness. And it might not look like how we see faithfulness, but it, it is truly faithfulness. And so in the Western world, we always we have this dualistic view, right? Like we say, there's this and there's this. There's that or there's that. And, and we try to we do this dualistic pull, right? Um, but that's not the Hebrew God. And I think sometimes that's the tension of that is we try to put our dualistic Western views into an Eastern society and, and the Hebrew God. And so here's, let me try to help you understand why God had to do what he had to do. So God is faithful, and there's both sides of this faith coin, right? So on side A, the God's faithfulness was he was patient. He loved his people, the people so much he was patient. He said, go prophets, tell the people. Go prophet, go tell the people. Go prophet. And time and time again, he said, please listen. He waited time and time again, and he was patient. Side A of faithfulness. But the other side, the side B of his faithfulness, is God, he's got that, he's faithful in what he says he's going to do and judge what he's going to do. And here's kind of some of that imagery. In verse 1, it talks about a cloud, and so that, what that represents is there's a, dark, there's a darkness over the city. And then it talks about, in verse 3, how God withdrew his hand. He withdrew his right hand, which was an important hand. It was the protecting hand. It was the strong um, the dominant hand. So that's important. So God is totally withdrawing. He's drawing, it says he's drawing lines like a surveyor to destroy in verse 8. And so when a surveyor would build or they would mark, you know, they do the chalk and the, the line with the chalk and they pop it. I was like that when I went on mission trips. Um, but that was, that's basically God's, in that, in that imagery is saying, hey, like this is, I'm marking this line. These are the walls that are going to go down. These are the walls that are going to be destroyed. He talks about a bent arrow. And what that means is you, he's bending the bow in order to get the arrow on in order for it to start shooting to get ready. So God is, there's this constancy of God on both sides of that coin, right? And then, you, then God's a God of integrity. And so what that means is God, so God was in covenant with these people, like I said. And so what that means is God follows through on his words. He follows through, whether it's the good or whether it's the bad. But God's going to follow through. And so the idea is, like, if God can follow through on his words of warning, surely God's going to follow through on his words of blessing, right? And then there's God in the way that he, that he, he views sin. God has to judge, because of his nature, he has to judge the unjust and those who are disobedient. It's who he, it's, 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 he's got to do it, right? And, and if God judges... The, if he judges the unjust and the disobedient, then there's got to be reason and hope to believe that God's a God of redemption. If God is a God of his word in both the covenant curses and the covenant blessings, because he can't separate both again, right? He's not a dualistic God. He, he cannot separate. So if he takes that seriously... then there could be possible for good and restoration. There's both. There's both. There's not either or um, God. There's both God and one of, the, of all this. See, because if he didn't follow through, he would lose this kind of street cred, right? Like, you know, um, I don't know. I'm not a parent, but, I mean, this is, I, mean I can see this in my, my, um, my sister-in-law and brother who they have kids. Like, they can say something... And if they, they say, this, this is, if you keep doing this to my niece, then this is the consequence. And if she, if, if she continues to do it and they don't punish her, they're going to be like, 
whatever, I'm going to do whatever mom and dad say. You know what I mean? So the parent, the, the parent loses the street cred. And, and not only that, but like, so God, if God doesn't follow through in the bad, then he loses street cred in the bad, but he also loses street cred in the good. So like, he, um, oh God, help me. Um, does that make sense? Okay, okay, that's all, that's all the Spirit told me to say. Like, like cool. Because um, God does, here, God wants to give the blessings, and he, does, he especially does not want to lose street cred with the blessings, with this covenant of blessings. Um, okay. So God is serious. He's super. He's serious about this judging idea. He's serious about following through. And like I said, if he's, if there's this reason, if, if he's serious about that, and there's, there's got to be reason to believe that he is just and faithful in restating his people. God's got the right to judge. So here's here's kind of the, the last part of Lamentations that I find kind of remar- remarkable. I guess I don't know, but like in verse 18, there becomes this shift. The people begin to tap into that hope. Um, of a God, if God can destroy, surely there's hope for redemption. And so there's a shift. So in verses 1 through 17, where he continually says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, he, 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 that is translated to Adonai, or also as Yahweh, which are, is the most sacred word for the name of God in Hebrew. The most sacred. So if you guys go back and reread that, the Lord, the he, the he, the he, Adonai, the people in, this, in the bad are acknowledging God's sovereignty in the bad, Right? They've acknowledged that. And so just like they're doing that in 18 and 22, they're once again acknowledging Adonai and crying out to him. They're wanting to seek him and appeal appeal in their suffering. And here's how the appeal works. So in 18 through 22, the appeal reveals just how much the violence, how much the desperation, how much the depression, how much the brokenness, how much it all is, how much that is really, really great, grave suffering during this time for the Jews. The, peop- the, the people are making this appeal and they're, they're just they're saying that this is great, grave suffering. And so there's this, genre, there's this mini subgenre in, in this part of Lamentations called the City Lament. And this was a literary approach that was used in other Eastern, um, Eastern writings with their gods and little Gs and all that stuff. So you can go back and Google that later. But, so, but what the author is doing here is he's using the City Lament in, in a way that does this really interesting thing, he says that the, the city lament in, the, in this appeal is that God would listen to is, or Jerusalem's pain in the hope to evoke pity. They're crying out to God, the God to watch us, to think about what's happening, God, and to be affected by our suffering that's taking place. The people are petitioning by telling God their side of the story. Because they know... So it's not one-sided. I just love that. It's not one-sided. But how often do, do we know that? Do we believe that? They did. In Lamentations 2. And see, this because this isn't only the, the first time that people make their appeal to God to evoke emotion out of God. There's other people in the Bible who do this. Some that come to my mind is Abraham. He appeals to God about Sodom. Moses, many times in, in the desert, said, God, please. He would definitely approach God, and, and God would say, all right, cool. I'll change what I'm, we'll change it a little bit. Gideon does it. So there's this, it's this, sorry, that was a little, like, geek moment for me, that, like, um, 
It's not the first time that people know that they can tap in to, to um, evoking emotion for God to request pity. And so there is, there's this idea, kind of what, um, uh, what's your face, Charles? <laughs> there's so many names. Abraham Moses, okay, Charles kind of alluded to before, is this communal suffering. The city suffered as a whole. And so they all came together. There were no pockets of the city that suffered by themselves. The city laments in their suffering. There wasn't like east side, west side, south side, north side, northeast side, south side, south side of the 35. You know what I'm saying? Like the whole city suffered. The city, the whole city cried out to the Lord day and night in repentance and in genuine sorrow for their sins. This is how they took the matters into their own hands. This is a great example of how to do that. They came together and they cried out to Adonai and they didn't, they didn't isolate themselves. They weren't like, oh man, it's getting too hard, I'm going to go, I'm going to go over here because it's getting way too hard. They didn't isolate themselves but instead they came together and they created a space where they could address the real realities of the suffering of the city. And so there is, there's this idea, this ultimate idea of shalom. And shalom means peace, but it's so much more than peace. It means completeness, it means wholeness, it means well-being, it means full. And that is the ultimate desire of God. But this can only happen when we fully engage with lament as a whole community. In all parts of the cities and the systems. Because we are people who are intertwined. So here's here's some here's some reflection. Oh man, I'm like one two. Okay, oh, okay. Um, so here's okay. In what ways do we and we, as I would define it, is that white skin privilege? Do we do we use that privilege to isolate and not engage in our community communal suffering? I mean, if you're, you're um, so I'm really interested in um, community development and how just time things shift and reasons why. And if you look why, when communities, how they, th- why they thrive and then why they start to not thrive. You know, there's history of like people, the people who are in these communities who start making money and they go, well, I'm going to go out to the suburbs and I'm going to go out in here and now, you know. So yeah, good point, Beth. Anybody else? Yep. A few of us got to ride around with uh, one of our friends from this act, is that what it's called, uh, a couple months ago, and into some of the neighborhoods that they're working in. Remember, we drove through the neighborhood just south of the fair, the state fair, mm-hmm. and just some of the um, uh, the description and the stories of, of that neighborhood. 
um, and particularly of kind of what the, of the school that was in that neighborhood and, and kind of imagining the kids walking home through um, areas where there's uh, just a lot of suffering and a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of problems and um, it just and then him describing how the fair has been built in such a way to to keep people from being able to come in and, and go to the fair and not see the neighborhood surrounding that and um, it just it struck me as how privileged I was to be able to walk my kids to school and not have to worry about them um, in that way it was just it was really heartbreaking it was, uh, to know that right there we've gone to the fair and uh, just completely ignored what that neighborhood's like right, mm-hmm. right next to it So just a question to, to leave away with today, to walk away with and be thinking about, what would communal suffering look like for you, where you live, and even as a church body? Western thought is to, um, I never say this word right, so I'm going to try it, compartmentalize. <laughs> yes! And I think that we do that in the Western. And Eastern Eastern life is not that. That's not uh, when Jesus, who we, like, that's not when he was talking through the Bible, That's he wasn't talking Western approach, he's talking that Eastern approach of we are all connected. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, something we've talked about is that we would view people very differently if if we embraced people of color and they were our friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the 50s and I, and, and I grew up in the North. And there was never a time in a month that sitting at our kitchen table there were not people of color at my table. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so that was a common occurrence in our home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I just feel like if, if, if it is those people that we struggle with, um, if we would embrace them and make them our friends, it would change the whole way we do them. Yeah. Have them into our home. They're going to sit mm-hmm. down. There's nothing like sitting down at a meal with um, other people and, and embracing them. Yeah. Um, my mom asked me a really interesting question um, a couple months ago. She because um, the centerpiece conference was happening and it already happened and all the stuff. And so she asked me. She's like, um, "Hey, Kara, do you think you would have been as involved as you would have been with centerpiece had it not been for your brother?" And I said, and I told me, I at first I was like, eh, and I was like, I don't know. Like I, told, I walked away from that conversation. And I was like, Mom, I don't know. Great question, because. I don't, you know, it's that idea of like, first, we have, we have the privilege, we have this to not be a part of certain pockets of people, right? Different color communities, LGBTQ plus plus communities, like, we don't, like, we don't have to if we don't want to. And yet, Lamentations 2 says, but you do have to. That's all I have. Thank you, Kara.